This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Turning now to the opioid crisis here in Illinois and across the country. Drug overdose deaths in America have reached a historic high, and opioids are the main driver of these deaths. And now pharmaceutical companies are facing a wave of lawsuits that claim their business practices helped fuel the deadly epidemic. Four of the country's largest corporations recently agreed to pay $26 billion to settle thousands of lawsuits nationwide. And Illinois' share of that settlement? $760 million. This epidemic has no boundaries. It has affected every community in the state of Illinois. This settlement will pave the way for Kane County, as well as all of the other communities, to begin to break that cycle and to save lives. We need to listen to those and dedicate this to those who have been in the trenches, on the battle lines of this public health crisis. Those were the state's attorneys of DuPage, Kane, and Lake Counties, speaking after the agreement was approved last month. So joining us now to discuss the latest is Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. Attorney General, great to have you back. Great to be with you. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So the CDC estimates that nearly 500,000 people have died from an overdose involving an opioid. That's between 1999 and 2019. How has the opioid crisis affected families and communities here in Illinois? Well, um, so the, the, the data that you just released uh, uh, reflects data nationally over a span of time. The, the, the thing to note about it is the number of opioid-related deaths have, have been increasing year after year. Uh, in, the, in the state of Illinois, in the year 2020, there were 2,944 opioid-related deaths at, at the rate of about, about eight per day, and that's a 32.7% increase over the prior year. Uh, this is a, um, a crisis that has invaded every corner of the state of Illinois and, quite frankly, every corner of uh, every state in our, in our nation. So talk to us more about this agreement. You've said that it's been several years in the making. So how did it come together? Well, it's multifaceted. First of all, uh, we went through what, what's called a multi-state process. That means attorneys general from all the 50 states and, and uh, territories would meet periodically uh, to discuss our uh, collective approach towards trying to hold manufacturers, distributors, and others responsible uh, for, for what they did to contribute to this crisis. And so that took a lot of negotiation uh, amongst us as to how, uh, what, what uh, injunctive terms and how much we were going to pursue from res- respective companies and how we would allocate amongst uh, the states. Then uh, it required conversation within states, because in addition to the states themselves suing uh, counties and municipalities, some represented by private counsel, um, also sued. And so I had to uh, get together some of the uh, state's attorneys that uh, you had on uh, the recording and and some others to come up with an agreement uh, between the state and uh, the counties as to as to allocation, and I went to the legislature last year uh, to ask for uh, authority to to come up with this agreement and to make sure that we were 
able to release uh, claims uh, of municipalities in the interest of mm-hmm. getting the maximizing the resources that would come to the state of Illinois. And we were able to do so and, and, and able to maximize resources coming uh, from this initial settlement with J&J, uh, the manufacturer of Johnson & Johnson, and uh, distributors Cardinal, uh, McKesson, and uh, Marisource Bergen. So Illinois is expecting to get $760 million from the agreement. Where's the money going? How's it going to be used? Um, the vast majority of money will be used for, for abatement, and that's something that uh, through our multi-state that uh, we, we push for. This is different than the, the sort of uh, the tobacco uh, set multi-state uh, settlement that, that came in the past where the money would just go into a general revenue fund for any type of use that may or may not be related to uh, tobacco addiction. This has to be used for um, uh, fighting the addiction problem and, and dealing with the consequences of, of addiction. Uh, some resources are set aside for what we call the subdivisions, which are <clears throat> the counties and municipalities um, throughout the state. Uh, in, in that pool of money, they will have some discretion um, uh, to utilize that money, some for abatement and, and some as they uh, choose. But the bigger bucket of money will go uh, through to a remediation fund, mm-hmm. and we'll have an advisory board um, with, with people with experience and, and representatives from throughout the state on the advisory board to direct the use throughout our state to make sure that there's equitable uh, distribution of these resources to to um, deal with this with this growing uh, uh, problem and and hopefully uh, enable us to uh, turn the trend uh, in a downward uh, direction. To that end, how does how do state and community leaders uh, make sure that these funds are distributed equitably? Well, that. Uh, what we try to do is to make sure that there's representation that uh, from throughout the, the state, the different regions of the uh, the state. Uh, we try to follow um, uh, guidance from the Department of Human Services as to uh, how to split up these regions and to make sure that we, we're getting expert um, assessment of what truly will uh, lead to abating uh, uh, the problem that has, has grown so exponentially. Um, and so as part of that process, I'm sure there'll be listening sessions and and, and um, proposals uh, being put forth um, yeah. as to how to address the, the problem. There are still many lawsuits against other pharmaceutical defendants that are unresolved. So how should these cases be handled so that companies are truly held accountable? Well, so uh, we we continue to be engaged, although it seems like there, there's uh, uh, an agreement in principle with uh, Purdue Pharma, uh, which was one of the big uh, uh, manufacturers that uh, 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 was a uh, egregious bad actor. Um, so that should should bring additional resources. We continue to engage. Um, uh, Teva and Allergen and um, and then some of the pharmacy uh, store chains that uh, may have also uh, contributed 
uh, to the problem. So well, we remain vigilant. It's multifaceted. Again, there's uh, there's the multi-state process, the, the states that are um, working together, and, and there's um, a plaintiff's executive committee, which, which consists of um, private attorneys that represent uh, municipalities uh, throughout the country, and, and we speak to one another and try to come to agreement and resolution um, by doing so. It's been a long uh, uh, slug. Uh, uh, those, yeah. uh, those negotiations have been multifaceted. They've been, there's been fighting and then coming to agreement, and uh, it, it hasn't been easy. That's Illinois Attorney General Kwame Raoul. We're talking about the funds Illinois expects to get from a nationwide opioid settlement. Attorney General, thank you so much for stopping by. Thank you for having me. Let's turn now to a Chicago doctor who is researching alternatives to opioids used to treat chronic pain. Dr. Timothy Lubinow is a pain medicine specialist at Rush University Medical Center. Hi, Dr. Lubinow. Welcome to Reset. Hi. Hi. How are you? And uh, thank you for having me. Before we talk more about your work, what's your reaction to this nationwide $26 billion opioid settlement? Well, it's a um, significant step in the um, uh, mechanism to try to put more money to additional research and try to get some other alternative treatments that are better and have a better quality of evidence to help patients than simply prescribing opiate medication. So hopefully it'll uh, achieve these endpoints. Are you hopeful that these litigations will, will make a difference? I don't know, because uh, it's only one part of the process. So we have a number of alternative treatments, such as advances in spinal stimulation, advances in minimally invasive approaches to treat uh, back pain and other spinal-type pains. And uh, while some health plans will pay for this readily, there's a number of health plans that um, restrict patients from getting treated with some of these newer modalities. And so uh, I see that um, uh, part of the impediment to delivering these alternative treatments to patients is uh, not necessarily um, what uh, you were talking about a few minutes ago, but really is uh, some of these health plans, particularly the health plans that have advantage in their uh, name. Mm -hmm. Uh, These are some of the bad actors in uh, uh, physicians' abilities to care for patients uh, rather than simply prescribe uh, opiate medicines. I see. Well, as someone who studies pain management, help us understand how opioids work and what you think led to the rise of addiction and overdose across the country. Well, opiates provide pain relief by binding to specific receptors within the brainstem and in the spinal cord, and these receptors serve to modulate or minimize the number of pain impulses that ultimately reach the brain where the pain stimulus is being interpreted as a specific type of uh, injury, whatever that injury had been, whether it be surgical uh, stimulus or whether it be some type of uh, accidental or occupational injury. So that's their basic mechanism. Um, you know, there's many different reasons for why patients have been caught up with this, and some of which is that different procedures or different medical illnesses 
leave patients with a certain element of chronic persistent pain. And uh, in the 90s, the um, uh, certain uh, medical professionals and in certain um, industries were pushing the development of opiate medicines. Uh, along the way, we've had more treatments come to market. And in the recent past five, six years, we've had more recent treatments brought to market than we had in the previous 20 years before that. Uh, and so we've met this demand for treating chronic pain with better refinements in the treatments that we previously had. There's a, a recent column in the New York Times that uh, talks about how uh, the harm that can be caused by, by sudden reductions in opioid prescriptions and that these cuts were made with the intention of preventing misuse. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it is true. When the CDC came out with these guidelines that they published in 2016, these guidelines basically said uh, one of a couple of things. One is that patients shouldn't be taking opiate pain medicines regularly for the treatment of a chronic pain, uh, chronic pain problem, and physicians shouldn't be prescribing them. And so what uh, the unintended consequence of this is patients who had previously been getting adequate pain relief from opiates, had their medications uh, dramatically reduced or sometimes eliminated altogether uh, simply on the basis that the CDC had placed this document into play. And so different physicians interpreted in different ways. Mm -hmm. And it is true that there were some patients who were unnecessarily weaned or uh, uh, decreased in their opiate medications at the expense of causing more pain. Uh, and so just recently, about a month and a half ago, the CDC uh, took a half a step back and said the original intent of that wasn't to necessarily wean all patients, who, uh, including those who had previously been stable. And so nevertheless, we have better treatment options in today's day and age than we did when the beginning of this opiate crisis began mm -hmm. in that early uh, 2000s. And so we have better levels of evidence. As a matter of fact, for some of these newer treatments that we have, we have level one evidence. That is to say the same quality of evidence that we've just seen be applied to the introduction of these new vaccines for COVID. We have the same quality of evidence for these newer techniques of spinal stimulation where I can insert electrical stimulating devices to yeah. control chronic pain or other types of titanium small implants that can go into different portions of the spine to control spinal pain rather than the traditional large incision spine surgery procedures that had previously been done 15 and 20 and 30 years ago. At the Rush Pain Center, you're focusing on treating chronic pain without opioids. So tell us, should providers switch to opioid-free pain management? Well, we won't be able to switch to opiate-free pain management to treat all aspects of pain. I think what one has to recognize is that there is a better approaches. And, for example, in treating post-surgical pain, which is a common area where opiates are used, we look at it with a different perspective than we did 10 years ago, 20 and 30 years ago. So we intentionally prescribe opiates for shorter time frames, and we use other modalities 
in conjunction with opiates to limit the opioid dose that patients will require and utilize other types of things, such as um, injections of local anesthetics to block nerve fibers that are in the territory where the surgical stimulus is being carried out, other adjuvant medications that are partially effective for pain but when used in concert with opiates can help deliver some element of pain control so patients will require less opiate medications. Mm -hmm. And so there are ways that we can do this in order to achieve a, a better response. And so physicians are mindful of how we use opiates now in a different way than we did, say, 10 and 20 years ago. That's Dr. Timothy Lubinow with Rush University Medical Center. Doctor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We've got more for you on the podcast, WBEZ's Reset, wherever you listen.